A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. Another jam-packed show for you this Thursday. Russian state media showing international inspectors arriving at Ukraine's massive nuclear power plant, even as shelling forces the shutdown of one of the facility's reactors. We'll be live in Ukraine with the latest. Also, the U.N. out with a scathing report on human rights abuses in China, accusing Beijing of possible crimes against humanity for its treatment and detention of Uyghurs and other minority groups. All that and more just ahead. But first, a check on the markets. Global stocks beginning the month of September with losses. U.S. futures look weaker. European markets currently are down more than 1 percent. Chip stocks in the red. That's as the U.S. moves to restrict sales of sophisticated semiconductors to China and Russia. And we're going to have more on that in just a moment. Energy shares are weaker as well. Oil continues its decline, driven by fears of weaker demand. Crude coming off its third straight month of losses. Red arrows in Asia as well. New numbers showing Chinese factory activity contracting in August as new COVID lockdowns weigh on sentiment. And we'll have more on the markets later in the show. But first, a team of experts from the International Atomic Energy Agency has arrived at the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear plant. It follows hours of delays and a drive through an active war zone. One of the reactors at the facility that was shut down earlier Thursday and an emergency protection system activated because of shelling in the area. Let's bring in Melissa Bell. She joins us now from Kiev. Melissa, gosh, you know, this is clearly a, a dangerous mission for Atomic Energy Agency inspectors. How long are you ex- thinking that they're going to be spending at the plant? Uh, Well, the idea uh, is that uh, we've been hearing from the Ukrainian uh, energy minister that, in fact, Rafael Grossi himself, who's leading that team, will be coming back across the line to Zaporizhia City back in Ukrainian. The Ukrainian held side uh, by this evening, leaving uh, some of his team behind if all goes according to plan. But as you suggest, Alison, just getting there uh, was even more difficult than I think they'd imagined as they set off from Kiev a couple of days ago. Uh, This was always going to be a mission that was fraught for, with, difficult, with dangers along the way, but the uh, shelling that took place in the town around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant this morning was the worst, according to the town's mayor, that the town has seen since it was occupied back in March. So a sudden flaring up uh, of uh, that shelling of the fighting with each side, of course, accusing the other of being responsible, but the fact of the plant being more vulnerable than ever uh, still there in the middle of that, as you say, one of the reactors turned off. It is now just one that is running, and that is the inspection, uh, that is the plant uh, that the inspectors uh, will be uh, having a look at. As you say, they've arrived, but as they'd set off, they'd been briefed about all of the shelling that was going on and some of the dangers they were likely to face along the way. Have a listen to what Rafael Grossi had to say. We are moving. Uh, We are aware of the current situation. There has been uh, increased uh, military activity, including this morning. Um, until very recently, a few minutes ago, I have been briefed by the Ukrainian uh, regional uh, military uh, commander uh, here about that and the inherent uh, risks, Um, but weighing the pros and cons and having come so far, we are not stopping. We are moving now. 
Uh, they are now carrying out that inspection, visiting the plant. We've been hearing also this morning from Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, who's been speaking of the fact that uh, they would uh, wanted to make sure that this inspection uh, was carried out properly, uh, that they would be showing uh, the inspectors uh, damage to the plant that they say was done by Ukrainian uh, forces. So it's difficult to know exactly what the inspectors are going to have access to and what information they're going to be given about exactly what's gone on and how the plant uh, has continued to function all this time. Bear in mind that this is a plant that it is, is in Russian hands but is manned uh, by Ukrainian uh, staff, those who lived and worked in it before uh, the occupation. How much access will the team get to them? That is uh, far from clear uh, uh, for the time being. Uh, what we expect to hear more from uh, then is uh, Rafael Grossi himself, who, as I say, uh, should be back in Zaporizhia city on the other side of that very dangerous line later today, Alison. Okay, and I know you will stay on top of this story. Melissa Bell, thanks so much. The Zaporizhia facility isn't the only nuclear power plant in Ukraine under threat. CNN's Sam Kiley has the details. Ukraine's second largest nuclear power station is under Russian missile threat, even as warnings of a nuclear disaster are causing international horror at its largest plant. There's just been a dramatic air raid siren. Do you know what the threat was then? Yes, we received information from the military that the air raid alert was for the danger of overflying or launching missiles by aircraft. Can we carry on or do we have to go down again? There are planes over Crimea with guided missiles on board. Nobody knows where they will fly. Let's go. <laughs> Down again. So the director's just said that they've got information that aircraft have been seen in Crimea. They're in this oblast, this province, or are heading in this direction, so they pose an immediate threat. This is something that happens several times a day. Very often they say the sirens are almost back to back. The director is told that the Russian aircraft crossing the Dnieper have fired missiles. Ukraine's military are tracking them, trying to figure out if his nuclear power station is the target. Welcome. This monitor shows that background radiation remains normal. Working in this bunker has become a new normal for the teams running the South Ukraine nuclear power plant. The maintenance of Ukraine's four power plants and 15 nuclear reactors is stressed. Part of the factory that produced spare parts were bombed by Russian army. That is, at the moment, there is nowhere to make some types of spare parts. And Russia has stored army trucks in Zaporizhia's turbine hall. It's identical to South Ukraine's turbine. Both use highly explosive nitrogen as a coolant. Fire here could be disastrous, and Russia is accused of shelling the plant, which it denies. This man worked at Zaporizhia under Russian occupation but fled in June. The Russians shoot at the territory of the plant, where the storage facility for solid waste is, where the dry storage facility for nuclear fuel is. At least three Russian missiles have been recorded flying over the South Ukraine plant. Back above ground, the director is amazed by Russia's threats to Ukraine's nuclear industry. They were so smart, they shelled the nuclear power plant. Either the military was not aware of the danger, or they did it on purpose. But as this plant generates 10% of Ukraine's electricity and Zaporizhia up to 20%,
there's no wonder that both are such tempting targets. Sam Kaili, CNN in South Ukraine nuclear power plant. The chairman of the giant Russian oil and gas company Lukoil has died after falling from a sixth-floor hospital window in Moscow. That's according to state media. Lukoil's website acknowledged the death of Ravil Maganov, but attributed it to a severe illness and made no mention of a fall. Back in March, referring to Ukraine, the oil company called for an end to the armed conflict. Rio Novosti quoted a law enforcement source as saying the businessman most likely committed suicide. The Xinjiang report finally released. A long-awaited report from the U.N. says China has committed serious human rights violations against Uyghurs and other Muslim groups in Xinjiang, which may amount to crimes against humanity. But Beijing is angrily rejecting the findings, calling the report a political tool to serve the U.S. and the West. Anna Korn has the details. Tears for missing family, harrowing details of torture of imprisonment and even death. The next thing you know, your husband is in a detention centre and you, you can't even see him, you can't even communicate with him. Now a vindication of some of that pain suffered by Muslim minorities in China's West at the hands of the state apparatus. Four years after stating its initial concerns, the United Nations has documented that abuses are occurring in Xinjiang and says China may have committed crimes against humanity in its internment of some one million people in what Beijing calls vocational education training camps. The damning report published minutes before UN Human Rights Chief Michelle Bachelet left her post. China vehemently opposed its release. Since World War II, this is the second time we're ever seeing a government, a powerful government, building massive and large-scale concentration camps to collectively punish a population for just being who they are. China insists its camps are used to de-radicalise religious extremists and that the facilities have closed, a claim the UN says it couldn't verify. Its propaganda paints a picture of violent separatism in the Xinjiang region. The UN says ultimately China's anti-terror campaign has led to the large-scale arbitrary deprivation of liberty. The liberty of people like Ekpa, brother of New York human rights lawyer Rehan Asad. A successful entrepreneur, Ekpa travelled with a Chinese delegation to the US in 2016 for a month-long trip, even visiting CNN headquarters in Atlanta. Within weeks returning from the United States, he was um, forcibly disappeared by the Chinese government into the shadows of it. So one of these camps and it's been six years, um, four months and still counting. China has kept the world away from its alleged crimes in Xinjiang. Bachelet herself was not allowed to speak to any Uyghurs in Xinjiang for her report. But for years, rights groups and news organisations, including CNN, have uncovered alleged abuses in Xinjiang, including sexual violence and forced sterilisation inside the Xinjiang camps. Don't do this. Don't do this. I, I, I cried. Please don't do this. Human rights group says the international community can no longer remain silent. You know, states should be going into the Human Rights Council thinking... Armed with this report, what best can we do to end violations in that region and find justice for the victims and survivors? That's what should be driving 
their next actions, not blowback from Beijing. Despite the mounting evidence, Beijing refers to the human rights allegations as the great lie of the century. It says the report is a farce that the United Nations has succumbed to a Western plot to discredit China. The report itself accuses China of intimidating Uyghurs abroad, threatening those brave enough to speak out against a system they say is designed to destroy them. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. And Will Ripley joins us with more. Will, what, if anything, will come out of this report that clearly lays out serious human rights violations? I mean, will the international community step up here? I think the most that can be expected is some sort of consensus uh, on the matter. And, of course, this will become uh, part of the historical record, along with, uh, you know, this is a 45-page report. China put out their own 131-page report, uh, nearly three times the length, uh, where they lay out their case that this is disinformation and lies uh, fabricated by anti-China forces. This issue of human rights is a fundamental difference between the authoritarian system in China and the West, because in China, when they talk about human rights, they look at statistics like the economic or GDP or even life expectancy. Uh, if, if, if healthcare systems, uh, you know, in Xinjiang have improved at the expense of assimilating you know, a million people, more or less, uh, you know, taking them, you know, ripping families apart, forcing them to, you know, speak a different language and to basically, uh, you know, erase their culture and become part of this homogenized, orderly Chinese system that is championed by the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, who was actually in Xinjiang as recently as July visiting and talking about how, you know, these, what what the UN called re-education camps, what China calls vocational training camps, are a huge success. You know, they're looking at people who now look like everyone else in China because their culture was essentially erased. And from the viewpoint of the Chinese leadership, that's a success story. And so even though this report, which has been in the works for four years, which China did everything possible, you know, to prevent from actually you know, being released to the public, now that it's out, certainly there's going to be global criticism. But at the end of the day, it's, it's almost, uh, you know, impossible that there will be any consequences for China itself, given the sway they have at the U.N., uh, you know, there's certainly not going to be any consequences internally uh, because, you know, this policy in Xinjiang has the backing of Chinese President Xi Jinping, much like the zero covid policy also has the backing of the Chinese president. So even though the rest of the world has moved on, China is doing its own thing at the expense of people's freedom of mobility. This is, you know, they've essentially created this huge surveillance state where everywhere people go, not only are they photographed and regularly tested for COVID, but they're scanning their QR codes. So every citizen, you know, one and a half billion people, their movements are being tracked. Uh, and, and the pandemic was the reason that they did it nationwide. In Xinjiang, they said it was religious extremism. And that was the excuse that they gave for setting up this police state uh, that has essentially made it uh, impossible for people to have to, to live, you know, the cultural cultural experience that they were brought up that was, you know, and not only that, but even to live with the people they love because families were ripped apart. And in many cases, still years later, they've had no contact and have no idea where their loved ones are. Well, Ripley, thanks so much for your great reporting and all that great context. No AI chips to China. The Biden administration ordering NVIDIA and AMD advanced micro devices to stop selling certain high performance processors to China over security concerns. Shares of the two companies are falling in the pre-market. 
want to bring in Rahel Solomon. She joins us now. Rahel, great to see you. So in, in this regulatory filing, NVIDIA says that uh, by not being able to sell these devices to China, it could potentially lose $400 million in sales in the current quarter. Is there any idea how NVIDIA is going to make that up? Well, yeah, NVIDIA's look is warning that it could take a pretty big hit from this. So let's talk about what we're even talking about here, right? When you think computing chips, Allison, uh, you think uh, gaming consoles, you think uh, computing chips, you think perhaps gadgets. What we're talking about here is really top computing chips uh, that are used in AI for uh, perhaps uh, speeding up machine learning, with the U.S. saying the concern being that these chips could end up in the hands of a military end user. So NVIDIA, as you pointed out, already warning that it could take a pretty big financial hit from this warning that it could potentially lose $400 million worth of business. Also saying in a statement to CNN Business that it is working with customers to in China to satisfy their planned or future purchases with alternative products and may seek licenses where replacements are not sufficient. Uh, it appears that this restriction could have differing impacts on differing chip makers because AMD said it does not expect that this will have a material impact, saying in its statement to CNN Business that at this time, we do not believe the shipments of these chips are impacted by the new requirements, adding, we do not currently believe that it is a material impact on our business. That said, both stocks lower in the pre-market, as you rightly pointed out, Allison, uh, NVIDIA off about 4%, AMD off about 2% in the pre-market. I'm wondering if this could backfire and actually hurt American companies like NVIDIA and AMD, because it would incentivize Chinese companies to, you know, move forward in this space and excel in this space. Well, it certainly makes it more expensive, however, for Chinese companies after this restriction. And I should say that China already hitting back uh, with a comment accusing the U.S. of imposing a tech blockade, also saying in part that the U.S. continues to abuse export control measures to restrict exports of semiconductor-related items to China, which China firmly opposes. Look, this is the latest headwind, Allison, for semiconductors. We should point out last month in August, NVIDIA had warned of slowing sales, of slowing revenue because of slowing demand for gaming consoles. And the stocks of both of these companies have really been quite badly battered this year. Uh, AMD is off about 43% year-to-date. NVIDIA, worse than that, it's off about 50% year-to-date. So it's been a rough go for the chip makers, and this latest restriction certainly not making it any easier. Allison? Okay. All right. Rahel Solomon, thanks so much. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. Former U.S. President Donald Trump says the discovery of classified documents at his Florida home should not have been a cause for alarm. In a court filing, his legal team argued that officials should have expected to find classified items because they were presidential records. It was his formal response to a filing from the Justice Department, which said his team had concealed documents at his home. The White House says President Joe Biden will deliver a primetime speech today about protecting the soul of the nation. He's expected to ramp up his attacks on the Republican Party, which he says is embracing semi-fascism. His more aggressive message comes ahead of the midterm elections this November. And Serena sails through in what could be her last major tournament. Serena Williams beat world number two Annette Contevet in three sets to make it through to the third round of the U.S. Open. She's also preparing for a doubles match with her sister Venus later today. Still ahead on First Move is now the autumn of our discontent. As we enter what's sometimes the worst month for investors, we'll speak to a market strategist about what's ahead. 
and up to 130,000 people facing new travel chaos. The latest as Lufthansa cancels flights due to strike action. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. The curtain about to rise on a new month of trading on Wall Street. Futures pointing to a rough start, though, to start September, with the major averages currently on track for their fifth straight day of losses. Stocks are coming off a sizable drop in August, with the Nasdaq leading the declines, down by more than 4.5%. September is traditionally a volatile month on Wall Street and lots of challenges for investors coming down the pike this year, including tomorrow's all-important U.S. jobs report. The report could influence the size of the Fed's interest rate hike that comes later this month. The big fear is that the Fed's efforts to raise borrowing costs and reduce inflation will tip the U.S. economy into recession. Just released jobless claims numbers show little evidence that employment is slowing so far with claims at their lowest levels since June. Troy Gajewski joins us now. He's the chief market strategist for FS Investments. Thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, great to be on, Allison. So let's talk about September. It's historically the worst month for investing. I'm curious to hear what you're expecting for the month. We, you know, we've got an ECB meeting. We've got uh, the Fed. We've got, uh, you know, the bond market. You're looking at the two-year. It breached three and a half. So you've got this inverted uh, yield curve going on here as well. Yeah. So unfortunately, Allison, uh, the outlook is for more pain ahead because, you know, the Fed's the most powerful financial institution on the planet. They want tighter financial conditions. And what that means is they want lower equity multiples. They want higher bond yields. And the reason they want that is they have to slow the economy in order to break inflation. And that basically means the outlook is very problematic for 60-40 portfolios, including both fixed income or bonds and equities. Uh, It's an unfortunate development uh, but that's just where we are at this stage of a cycle. You know, we're st- all still reeling from uh, the Jackson Hole appearance of Jay Powell and, <clears throat> excuse me, and you got that aggressive stance that he made there um, about some pain on the horizon. Do you think that Jay Powell has reignited the bear market? Oh, well, we don't think we were ever out of a bear market. We just had a very powerful bear market rally. Uh, people were very conservatively positioned. And then ultimately, trend followers flipped from being short to long, and that sucked in long managers to chase their benchmarks. Uh, it was going to come to an end. The question was just how soon. And obviously, the catalyst for it was Powell pushing back very hard and saying, look, like we're raising rates, we're draining the balance sheet, we're not cutting again anytime soon. Um, and that's led to this another round of pain. And the stronger the data comes in, the, the more pedal to the metal the Fed is going to get, right? I mean, you know, for, ex- well, for instance, exactly the jobs right. report coming Friday. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, it is encouraging to see the labor market still hang in there. There's still a, a low probability that we can avoid a recession here, although unfortunately that's gone up. But the stronger the economy behaves and, and the more buoyant markets are, like they were in July and early August, the more aggressive the Fed can be at tightening. Because, again, they want to cool the economy. And so one of the cool things now, Allison, is that, you know, uh, alternative investments have been democratized. They're much more user friendly. So there are strategies like senior secured commercial real estate or there are strategies that are very market neutral where you have a chance to make a mid to low high single digit return in an environment like this. And you don't have to be a sovereign wealth fund or, or an endowment or foundation to actually 
uh, go after those strategies in a choppy, sloppy mess environment. I want to ask you about cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin continues to trade in this very narrow range. What has to happen to get it to make its next move higher? Yeah, well, the first thing would be, remember, crypto and Bitcoin in particular is a very cyclical asset because every four years, new supply is halved. So in 2024, will be the next halving cycle. So we do expect strength to start to emerge in late 23, early 24. So that's more of a local uh, crypto issue. In terms of the broader economy, though, it's unlikely that we have material upside in any asset until the Fed eventually pivots. And really, the soonest we could see that happening is late 23 right now. So crypto alongside equity markets and fixed income will remain a pretty challenging place to be. And you, you can't expect material upside. And unfortunately, you should be expecting more downside. And you talked about opportunity in this market. I'm curious if you think it's better to keep cash on the side or is there a risk reward scenario going on here? Yeah, look, so if you have some cash, don't be aggressive at putting it to work. Certainly do me a favor. Don't chase the next bear market rally that always ends in tears. But if you can allocate to strategies and alternatives that can generate either through income or total return, you know, that mid to low high single digit, that's going to look very good over the next several years because we're in this period, what we call a galactic mean reversion, where just about every factor that drove excessive financial outperformance versus the real economy, including limitless money supply growth, lower and lower interest rates, globalization, moving to deglobalization. They're now moving the other way and they're moving the other way in tandem very, very fast. So in an environment like this, protecting capital, you know, having some cash, don't chase bear market rallies, focus on democratized alternative strategies that can grind out a mid to low high single digit return. Yeah, we definitely don't want to see tears. We don't want to see tears. Our yeah. thanks to Troy Gajewski. He joins us uh, from uh, chief, mar- he's the chief market strategist for FS Investments. Thanks very much. After the break, why run one supercar company when you can run two and sell battery technology as well? Just like his cars, there are many angles to Bugattis. Um, I'm going to be talking about I'm going to be talking with Mate Rumutz next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks are up and running this Thursday, the first trading day of September. The major averages beginning the month with across the board losses. Higher bond yields helping pressure stocks as investors weigh the chances of aggressive interest rate hikes from both the U.S. Federal Reserve and the ECB. The ECB meets next week to consider a possible three-tenths of a percent increase in borrowing costs. Stocks in the news today include chip giants NVIDIA and AMD. They're falling on news that the U.S. will restrict sales of some chips to China and Russia, citing security concerns. MicroStrategy under pressure as well, down by some 4 percent. The company's chairman, Michael Saylor, is under investigation for allegedly not paying over $20 million in local income tax. Saylor is famous in the investing world for placing aggressive bets on Bitcoin using company funds. Bugatti's slogan is, if it's comparable, it's no longer Bugatti. But just like Ferrari, the supercar seller says it's not seeing recessionary fears among its uber-wealthy buyers. In fact, it's heading in the opposite direction, with the company sold out until 2025, and that includes this limited-edition Mistral uh, Roadster. Uh, They cost $5 million each, 
and they will be the last Bugatti to have a famous W16 gas engine as the company transitions to a hybrid electric future. And amid that transformation, the company structure, that has changed as well. Now spun off from Volkswagen, Bugatti uh, Remax, also known as uh, Rebots, is now known uh, also as, as a sell-all electric supercars under uh, the brand. The Nevera costs just over $2 million, and it's seen strong sales in the U.S. Remax also ships EV batteries to major manufacturers. I want to bring in Mate Rimat. He is the CEO and so excited that you can join us today on the show. Thanks so much. It's nice to be here. All right. So just about every analyst and economist thinks that a recession is coming, yet at $5 million a pop, your buyers were lining up to purchase your last gasoline-powered car. Why are your buyers seemingly not worried about recessionary risks? Yeah, a really good question. I must say I have been surprised a little bit as well because the Mistral, the 99 units, we have only shown to our existing customers, so only to people who have multiple Bugattis already. And we did that during the summer break, basically. So in late July and early August, and within three, four weeks, we completely sold out the car and had a long line of customers lined up uh, being a little bit angry that they didn't get their allocation because the car was limited to 99 units. Why that is so? I guess it's multiple factors. First of all, uh, the glorious W16 engine, it's like, you know, peak engine. Everybody's scaling down on engine development or stopping their engine development and switching completely to electric cars. So I guess that people want, you know, the last of its kind and the pinnacle of engine development, which will never be matched again as everybody has stopped developing combustion engines, then I would say it's also a beautiful car. But I think also, as we have just heard before, uh, that stocks are you know very volatile at the moment, uh, crypto as well and so on. So I think it's also a very good asset to invest in to keep your money um, safe. Do you think that some of this is also, I'm talking about these buyers lining up to, to get one of these 99, <laughs> are customers kind of lamenting the end of an era of, a ga- of these gas-powered cars? Yeah, absolutely. The whole industry is going really electric. While it was, you know, like just a few years ago, it was still like greenwashing and everybody was talking about it, but not really doing anything. Now in the last few years, uh, things have changed dramatically. And, you know, I started making electric cars when I was 21 in 2008 uh, in, a, in my parents' garage. So I'm in this industry while everybody thought it's never going to happen. And I must say, I don't know what it was during the last couple of years, if it was COVID or Greta or, you know, whatever. But, you know, legislation is changing. The markets are changing. The car companies are all fully committed to really go electric. So, yes, it's changing and people are kind of um, nostalgic and want to get their last combustion engine cars. I love how you started in your parents' garage. I have to say that. You know, as the company shifts to all hybrid and electric, are you experiencing any supply chain restraints or constraints? Yeah, supply chains are are a challenge everywhere. I mean, we have two Mm -hmm. sides of the business, making hypercars in small volumes where the challenges are less. But on the other side of our business, we are developing and producing electric batteries and uh, batteries for electric cars and powertrain systems for the big car companies. So tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of batteries and so on. And we see the challenges everywhere in the small volume production and also in the large volume production. You know, uh, the, the global supply chains are so interlinked. You know, even if you talk about raw materials, 
you know, that raw material manufacturer also relies on modern equipment that relies yeah. on electronics. And, you know, if there is problems down the line, for example, if the raw material supplier cannot buy an excavator because the excavator manufacturer cannot buy chips, you know, to make the excavator, you feel that down the line. So all the supply chain is really uh, challenging. But what we have learned, I think, as an industry and everybody kind of has adapted to it, you just have to plan better in advance and make commitments really early on. So if you plan well, if you know what you're doing, what's going to happen, and put, put the money there, you know, with your suppliers, then you, it's right. manageable. Mate, I want to ask you this. I checked out your Instagram, saw a picture of you and Elon Musk, you know, hanging out in New York. What was that meeting all about? And are, are you looking for a tie-up in the future, maybe? Or was this sort of getting advice from him or you giving advice to him? Well, uh, that was uh, actually uh, dinner at the... Uh, so Goldman Sachs is one of our investors. And Mr. Solomon, the CEO of Goldman, uh, has invited us for dinner there. So Elon and me were some of the guests. Uh, and I must say, you know, I'm a big fan of Elon Musk and whatever he's doing. I think he's doing the most exciting things in the world right now and making the future really exciting with uh, rockets and everything else he's doing. So it was really fun to discuss yeah, and to meet, uh, you know, one of my personal heroes also in person. Yeah. <laughs> I know the first Navera was delivered to Formula One legend Nico Rosberg. I think we've got video of you both enjoying that ride. What was that like? And, and were you scared he was going to break it? Such a great handling. <laughs> yeah, you know, developing a car and actually building a company that can build a car, it's, it's a really tough undertaking, especially, you know, I'm sitting here in Croatia that never had a car manufacturer. It's uh, it, no investors, no market, no supply chain, you know, no talent. So it was really, really hard to build that company here. And then finally, after years and years of doing that, we uh, finished the car. And then the moment of truth comes, you know, everybody has a plan until get, they get punched in the face. And in our case, that's when the customer, you know, drives the car. You know, you, you can do everything in your power, but then you are depending on the verdict of the driver. And who better to give a verdict than a Formula One world champion who actually paid two million to buy the car? So that was, you know, lots of emotions for me, but also good drivers are usually bad passengers. And especially with a Formula One driver, I must say it was a little bit too exciting for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fast to say the least. A pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much for taking time out today. Mate Rimats, uh, the CEO of Bugatti Rimats. Thanks so much. Still Thanks ahead to $1.4 billion and beyond. SpaceX inks a major new deal with NASA. What it means for space exploration next. Up to 130,000 more people could be facing travel chaos after Lufthansa canceled flights on Friday due to industrial action. Passenger and cargo planes from its two biggest hubs, Frankfurt and Munich, will be grounded. Pilots are going on strike after the company turned down their pay demands. That's according to their union. Anna Stewart is on the story for us. I guess this is just the latest salvo in just a terrible travel season for Europe. 
It really is. And for Lufthansa particularly, which has faced lots of strikes actually over the summer. This isn't the first strike for Lufthansa's pilots. And once again, as you said, this is going to impact so many passengers, expected 130,000. And that's given that almost all flights from Munich and Frankfurt are expected to be cancelled tomorrow. You have been warned. Uh, Ongoing pay disputes with the pilots union, the VC. Uh, They say that talks have failed. They want to see a 5.5% pay rise for their pilots. That's more than 5,000 of them and inflation compensation thereafter. Now, interesting, Lufthansa has actually fairly recently reached a deal with their ground staff. They also went on strike earlier this summer, causing extra chaos. And actually, the one day of pilot striking that we saw, I think, last month, not only caused a lot of chaos, but it cost Lufthansa a lot of money. Estimated lost revenues of 30 to 35 million euros. And for that last strike, I was actually quite shocked at just how many people found themselves on particularly long-haul flights connecting, of course, through Frankfurt and Munich, suddenly found themselves stranded, weren't aware of what's happening. And when you talk about strikes of this magnitude, it's really hard for the airline to communicate well with passengers as to what they should do with their next steps. They have faced this multiple times, of course, across the summer. So perhaps tomorrow will be different, but we'll have to check in with passengers tomorrow and see how they get on. Alison? You know, labor shortages are really causing issues here in the U.S. as they are in Europe. Yeah, it's been... It's been a summer a lot of people would like to forget in terms of travel. On the one hand, the good news was this huge resurgence in travel demand. People wanted to take off and get away and go on holidays, go on business trips. But the sadness was that really airports, particularly in airlines, simply weren't ready for that level of demand. Now, there were huge job cuts, also pay cuts throughout the pandemic. They were necessary for many airlines and airports to keep them afloat. But it's been really a struggle to recruit and get back to the levels where they were. So we've seen actually Mm -hmm. in Europe thousands of flights uh, just cancelled from existing summer schedules, both by airports and by airlines. And on top of that, the staff that are there feel disgruntled by pay cuts or with inflation now topping 9% in Europe, feeling like their real wages are just falling month by month. They want to be paid more. They feel overstretched. And that's why we've seen such huge strike action also uh, weighing on this sector. A number of airline strike deals have actually been reached, which is quite interesting. In June, for instance, Norwegian Air, uh, they agreed to deal with pilots. We've had SAS and Ryanair follow suit as well. British Airways and KLM agreed to deal with ground staffers, as did Lufthansa uh, just last month. But, of course, many deals have yet to be reached. So I think we could see more travel disruption to come from multiple airlines uh, as this summer closes. But also, of course, for the next holiday season, which will come up before we know it, Alison, Christmas. <laughs> In no time. Anna Stewart, thanks so much. And from aerospace to outer space. Three, two, one, ignition. And liftoff of Starlink. As SpaceX celebrates its latest launch of Starlink satellites, it's signing a major new deal with NASA. They've agreed to extend their partnership to cover five more astronaut launches. The deal is worth $1.4 billion. Paula Monica joins us now with all the details. So it seems like this contract really cements the relationship between Musk's SpaceX and NASA. Yeah, definitely, Allison. This will uh, bring the size of that contract to about $5 billion now for SpaceX. And clearly, uh, it is yet another validation for Elon Musk's space exploration company. And it's a reason, I think, why uh, SpaceX has that whopping private market valuation in excess of $100 billion. It really does show that NASA 
trusts SpaceX to bring crews to the International Space Station through 2030. Boeing, for example, is a key competitor to SpaceX, and they're still in the stages of doing unmanned missions to the space station and not going to have a crewed mission until 2023. So clearly NASA trusts SpaceX to get actual human beings to the space station now. Yeah, what I'm yep. just curious to see what missions are in store here since they have such a solid contract. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be very interesting because there are also questions, Allison, about the future of the space station. There are hopes, obviously, that you will have astronauts there through 2030, but that includes Russia astronauts as well. And of course, as we all know, there's a lot of tension between the U.S. and Russia and Russia and the rest of the world regarding the invasion of Ukraine. Hopefully that won't disrupt this space exploration partnership, but it is an open question whether or not Russia will still be committed to the ISS through 2030 in light of the geopolitical tensions. Okay, Paula Monica, thank you so much. And next, the company giving prefab Sprout a new meaning, how tiny homes like these are popping up in even winning the affection of people like Elon Musk. As we were discussing earlier, Elon Musk might have grand designs in space, but it appears he also has tiny ones here on Earth. Musk reportedly owns a home like this that can be set up in just an hour, costing just under $50,000. The company behind it is called Boxable, and it wants to change the way we think about housing. Boxable's founder, director and founder, Galliano Terramani, joins us now from Las Vegas. Thanks for your time today. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. All right. I want to get a little bit more on the specs here. Once this thing is set up, how do you get services in? Where's the plumbing? And, and about that concrete slab that it sits on, how does it get there? Yeah, so our first product is actually a, a 20 by 20 room, like kind of a little studio apartment with a kitchen, bathroom, bedroom, and couch. It deploys in just about an hour. And the idea is that our product would dramatically reduce the cycle time for builders and developers. So instead of having you know six months to build a building, they can just prep the site with utilities and foundation and deploy our room that's fully finished from the factory in just you know a few hours. And by doing it this way, we think we're going to be able to dramatically lower the, the cost and time to build houses. And that concrete slab, is it? how does that come into play here? Well, actually, our rooms don't need a foundation or they are compatible with any different foundation type. And really at Boxable, we have just a new way to build that is uh, better, lower cost. And we are mm -hmm. actually mass producing these buildings in a factory uh, the, like, like the factory behind me right here. I want to talk about the price because I understand the starting price is $50,000 for one of these. The website now saying, though, the price of what's known as a casita on a case-by-case -case basis. Is this because of inflation that building materials cost more and so the, the price is really uncertain? Well, the real reason is we've seen such incredible interest and demand in the product. So now the wait list has over 130,000 names on it of people that want to buy a casita. So we're working as, as fast as we can, as hard as we can to scale up uh, this first factory, which we set up just a year ago. We now have a second factory next door that we'll be moving into in a few months. And we're working on a third factory that's hopefully going to be a billion dollar factory that's going to allow us to meet some of this huge demand. But the idea with the price is, 
uh, with 130,000 names on the wait list. We don't know when we're going to be able to deliver you your house. So we thought it made sense to just kind of pull the price because, of course, inflation, things are changing. And then also to the prices is shipping. You can ship anywhere in the world, but it's 3 to $10 a mile. So a little rough math, if I ordered one from Las Vegas to New York, so that's 2,522 miles. At $3 a mile, it's 7500 on top of that. But it could go as high as $25,000 to ship. So um, that, that's on top of the price, right? Yeah, our initial order when we set up this factory was to Florida for 150 houses. So we shipped them all there. I believe it was under 10,000 to ship each house over to Florida. And the idea here is that since our houses do fold up, uh, shipping is uh, dramatically less than a comparable modular home, which ships as a a wide load and costs a lot of money. So what that's going to do is allow us to scale up manufacturing so that hopefully we can you know, kind of mass produce these the same way we mass produce automobiles and dramatically, you know, push the price down. So you see most car factories producing one house, one mm-hmm. car per minute. We'd like to produce one house per minute in our factory. What about where you put the house? You have to obviously own the land. And if you don't own the land, you have to have zoning, right? Yeah, we have all kind of different uh, use cases for these buildings. The original idea was accessory dwelling units, so uh, backyard houses in places like California, where they've actually kind of legalized putting a backyard house in almost every backyard in the state. So uh, in that case, you know, you're just going to deploy one in the backyard of an existing house. Uh, but you can do other things too, like build a little village of them or just do a new uh, development or a vacation rental. Uh, what we're producing here are rooms. And they can also stack and connect. And the plan is that these will go far beyond the tiny house. We'll end up with a building system where we kind of mass produce different size rooms with different interiors and can build most different building types on the planet, whether it's a traditional single family or a big, you know, thousand unit multifamily apartment building. Very quickly, I'm curious because I know you've done business with the U.S. government. Any, any idea about doing business with cities and housing the homeless? 30 seconds. Yeah, we have uh, yeah, we have a huge amount of interest coming from all over uh, different governments, local governments. And we're working with uh, a bunch of different places to get this housing out there to hopefully increase supply of housing, therefore lower the cost of housing and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, maybe help the homeless. All right. Galliano Terramani, thanks so much uh, for coming on the show today. These look kind of cool. <laughs> Thank you. That's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World is next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.